Q&A number two was presented by Earl Craig and David Crabtree on August 4, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute. Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. The following recording was made in a classroom setting, and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. Okay, let's start the question and answers. Okay, this is for Earl. You opened the door and you talked about your personal status. I mean, you used the word depression. And you were talking about how these things can change the way that you said you call them life-changing and thought-changing. And I was just wondering if you would want to expand upon that, just from your personal story and what you were thinking and how this did change your life. The life-changing aspect of this has not helped my depression. It has simply put it in perspective in that I find that the emotional and psychological struggles that, that I've had for a while exist within the context of the journey that God has designed for me that includes them, while I also am pursuing a better understanding of the truth that he provides us within the biblical message. And so I'm, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek when I say that it really hasn't helped in that, yeah, it helps, but sure hasn't cured it, sure hasn't completely eliminated the struggles in my life emotionally and psychologically and others besides. As I said, I think what it mostly has done is put them in perspective. And as far as I can tell from what I've studied of both, particularly of the New Testament, is that that really is more the norm, that's more the the rule than the exception. Here are people who will say that, that God has freed them from their emotional struggles. And they prayed and it, and it happened. God bless them for it. Love to see that happen in my life. Haven't seen it happen in my life. Not necessarily expecting it to happen in my life because whatever God is doing in their lives, okay. But as far as I can tell from what the biblical message is telling me, what are all of our struggles are intended to point us towards the eternal kingdom of God. And so I need to embrace my struggles, see them as a friend that spur me on to, to dig more diligently for the truth to continue to point me towards the eternal kingdom of God, of the next creation, that this realm was never intended to be that in which we would be freed from all of our struggles. I think even in millennium, if I understand that correctly, when Jesus was ruling over the kingdom of Israel from Jerusalem, and there really is shalom throughout the earth, it's still not a shalom where all individuals who are authentic believers are completely freed from their emotional, psychological struggles and maybe other struggles too. They just have a, almost a sort of a clearer picture of what that's really all about with Jesus finally ruling over the kingdom of Israel as they also, all these people who continue to struggle, are headed towards the next creation 
of the eternal kingdom of God. Well, I want to thank you so much for all the work that you put into this. For the most part, it leads to more questions instead of answers. But in Earl's case, it did lead to an answer. I think you and I shared this. It was, I was always confounded in Luke 2, 36, where it says, and there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage. And then she was a widow at the age of 84, and she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So here's a woman from the tribe of Asher living in the land of Judah. I thought, how did she get there? And she probably didn't come alone. How did that happen? So thank you for providing. It's like I have lots of questions in my Bible, but now I, today I get to put a ha-ha and a check on that one. But many more questions. And so, David, I've got a question for you. And I'm sorry if this extends your study, or I'm happy for that. (laughs) But have you ever taken a look at how the prophecies were given to each of the sons of Jacob and their meanings, and compared to at Deuteronomy to the blessing of the tribes? And if so, the differences? I haven't. Well, there's more study to be done, more work. Uh, Thank you both for a great day. The question I have regards... The sovereignty of God and the will of man and the will of mothers like Rebecca, who received an oracle for God. Esau was a firstborn, and so he would have the natural right of becoming the next generation of leaders. And, but what about the sovereignty of God who allowed that to happen? And now you have the, the second choice in the minds of many would be Jacob, who struggled all his life, who struggled in his marriage. He was a manipulator. Mother was a manipulator. Can we not trust God to take care of our leadership? That's the question. Because David trusted God's leadership with Saul. And even though Saul was a terrible excuse of a first king, David waited for God's sovereignty to bring it to pass. How do you deal with those two conflicts? Repeat just the question. Yeah, the the question is, can we trust God to equip Esau to be his leader? Because it's how he did the birth order. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Esau wasn't given a position of authority. In Saul's case, you have someone who has a position of authority. Esau hasn't been given a position of authority. He's just, by convention, he would be the one who would typically inherit. What we see in, throughout Genesis is it is, although the cultural norm is for the oldest to inherit, consistently it is the oldest that does not inherit throughout Genesis. If you look at who inherits, it's I don't think there's an exception. It's always not the firstborn. And that happens through different kinds of circumstances. And I think what we see happening there is God's sovereignty in the sense that in various ways, God makes sure that things unfold the way that he wants them to unfold. Sometimes it's with the cooperation of man, and sometimes it's in spite of what man does. I think what we're to see there is God is clearly in control. He's doing his thing. And it's not always, it's not what we would expect. Did I answer your question? This is just a really simple question. But on the asterisks, yes. <laughs> you know, where you changed your yes. mind. Yeah. Was that just as you were preparing for the study for this week? Yes. Then how long had you held the other positions, I guess? And I taught through Genesis twice in the past. I think the last time was started in 2000. That's what I believed the previous times that I went through. But this time, then, it's just been over the last 
three weeks that I've been looking at these passages again and seeing things that I had not noticed before. And Did you approach studying it in a different way? What happened is I went with the question, what should we be thinking about Rachel? And as I thought more seriously about that particular question, how should we view Rachel, I began to see things that seemed to indicate to me that she was being portrayed in a more positive light than I had previously believed. And it's difficult. It's just little things. And part of what convinced me was looking at the other patriarchs and seeing how flawed they were and seeing that flaws don't mean that someone is not devoted to God and be seen that as devoted to God. And the other thing that I noticed was the parallels between Jacob and Rachel. In Jacob's life, we have probably the fullest description. I mean, the the largest section of Genesis is devoted to Jacob of any of the patriarchs. And so you see more of his trajectory, what all of the things that take place there. And it seems to me that there are shorthand ways in which the author is showing us that Rachel is similar to Jacob. They're soulmates in a way that he and Leah are not. And I don't think that's just based on her good looks. There's something that they share that's much deeper than that. Yeah, symbiotic type yes. of personalities. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Earl had kind of alluded to the fact that Solomon had some flaws. Solomon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I'll see if I can be clear in my question. I have one for each of you. Earl, let's start with you. Our group convinced me of a slight, ever so slightly different perspective. I mean, it was almost exactly what you concluded, but with one exception that I have never even considered before. And the question is, how to view Egypt? Is it the place of captivity, or was it the incubator of Israel? Was it the place where they were protected and grew and progressed? Because if you look at that passage in Hosea, I think it's retrospective when he says to about, I, I taught you to walk and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. So, which seemed to support the idea that, because they weren't taken into Egypt as judgment. They just kind of ended up there to protect them from the famine. And then just things evolved and they evolved into a slave class and into a captivity. But it, that's where they grew up. And then there came a time where God called them out your childhood is over. I, Yahweh, am inviting you now into your maturity where you will be my people and I will be your God. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. So rather than Hosea looking at as calling them out of captivity, I mean, that was true, certainly, but, mm-hmm. but what was significant for him is you're now leaving the protected place of, your, of what was your childhood under my tutelage, and now we're going to get on with the promises, the destiny that I have for you. And then likewise with Jesus, then, exactly. Of all the places to take him, he took him down to Egypt and said, we're just going to keep you safe here until it's time to get on with you coming back to enter into the place where you were. Does that make sense to you? Yes, yeah, it does make sense. Do I agree? I'm not sure. Let me think about that uh, some more. I probably need to think through better or, or some more than what follows what you alluded to right after 
God says when Israel was a youth, indeed I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And, and so the question is, what role is Egypt really playing there? So I guess what, you're, what you and your group are suggesting is, is that Egypt is playing the role of a place of protection, yeah. not a place of danger. And that's yeah. what I had said, was yeah, it's a exactly. place of danger. So as he goes on here, they called to them, they in turn walked away from them. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning incense to the idols. This is a a mysterious series of statements. They can appear, they don't appear really coherent. At least they didn't to me at first, and I'm not sure they still do. Even after what God has said in chapter 10, but I've taken the they there, they called to them as prophets or teachers, or we, we could say, people who really were fully committed to God, talking to the Israelites, calling to them to walk away from idols. Now, it's strange that, and there's a possibility that I've entertained that this is like God saying, oh gosh, what prophet is it? When you came out of Egypt, you brought your idols with you. You were basically an idolatrous people when I rescued you from Egypt. And yet you had people who were encouraging you not to be idolatrous even as you were leaving Egypt. So I've been heading in that direction where, and then he goes on, and this is what I really wanted to get to. I bound Ephraim's feet. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Who lifts the yoke of their jaws, I reached out to them and fed them. I was taking that as I grabbed hold of Ephraim, Israel, in Egypt, and brought them out with ropes of love because they were in danger down there due to the oppression and due to their idolatry that, that was there. So I wanted to get them out of Egypt, bring them to the land of Canaan, the land of Israel that I have promised to them through Abraham. And there's also something else here too. Is it here or is it another passage I'm going to talk about this week where... It's in this collection of stuff that I did here somewhere where God says, basically, surely they will follow me, right? And so the idea being that the Israelites were always basically kind of in danger, and Egypt was the classic place because they were in slavery, and they were in slavery and oppressed. So as the more that I talk about it and answer your question, I guess the more that I'm convincing myself that I think that Egypt is a place of danger and not of protection. But I'll think about it some more. Okay. And then David. So the return from the land is what? The enemies, where it talks about the land of yeah, the enemies. Yeah, return from the enemies. When is that going to happen? I as, assume as that's the return from the exile. Okay. What if it's the millennial? What if it's the return to the land before the millennium? Right. Um, that's possible. Okay. But that's, in dealing with prophetic literature, that kind of decision is really difficult to make, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. What would steer you towards thinking that it would be... Well, the otherwise seemingly hyperbolic description, including the one of repentance. Right. Granted, there was repentance when they returned from Babylon, but the kind of wholesale repentance that appears to me to be talking talking about there seems to me a more stronger kind of thing. So what occurred to me is that Rachel then, and this sort of supports your thesis on Rachel, it seems to me that Rachel has become for Jeremiah a symbol of a believing Israelite, that she kind of symbolizes the belief in the promises of God. So 
Why is she weeping? Because it appears that the promises of God are being thwarted mm-hmm. as, as Judah and Jerusalem are being hauled off to Babylon. So at this really dark, bleak time where it appears that they're being thwarted, God responds right. to her, don't weep. Right. But then the question is, what's the reward? And again, the wages of the reward is her reward for her belief. Yeah. Okay. Right. And for any believing Jew, the day is going to come when God is going to remain faithful to his promises, and it's going to happen, just like you said. I mean, that's right. what you said. But. Right. Right. May I go back to your question to me? Yeah. And looking at the next verse, they will not return to the land of Egypt, instead to Assyria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see how that would be. They're not going to go to a place of protection. That's where they were when I called them out as my son. And they went down there as a place of protection because they went down there as a result of a famine. And the famine in Israel drove them down there. Mm-hmm. And yes, they ended up getting enslaved. But initially, the purpose of being in Egypt was protective or uh, life-sustaining. Well, just to think about this, I'm at the mercy of the near international version that we've got here. So you have the advantage of it. You looked at the text. But if I'm just looking at the New International Version, yeah. there would be a way of looking at the logic of this. That is, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, further they went yeah. from me. Yeah. So what I was doing is I was inviting them yep. out into this entirely new relationship with me. Did that happen? No. They brought their gods with them. Yeah. They were unfaithful. The more I called, the more they went to the Baal, gotcha. the Elim. And then if you take it as retrospectively, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. When? In Egypt. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed hmm. them. This has. But when I brought them out of the land, having called them, did they remember Hmm. who I was and what I had done and what I had given. No, they followed the Baalim yeah. instead. So that's why I'm saying if that's retrospective, then that could be Egypt again that he's talking about. But what did I do? I took them out of slavery. Now the theme changes a little bit. Now it is slavery. What I called them out of was a thing of slavery, and now what's about to happen? They're going to go back into slavery, not into Egypt, but to Syria. There is a way of looking at it if I look at just this translation. Yeah, gotcha. Thanks. I love the concept of looking at the trajectories and the growth of the faith of the patriarchs. Um, It's kind of interesting because the flip side of that is in the Jewish world, they look at the understanding of God, God revealing himself more and more. So they see God is revealing so the people understand it better. Maybe that happens. I don't know. Maybe he's revealed himself 100%. But as the people grow in faith, they can apprehend more. But just to look at the progression of these people of faith, that it isn't all a straight line, that is up and down, so much like our lives. We're up and down, but yet we can say, yes, we have a trajectory and we're going forward even though we have dips or maybe some Grand Canyons in our life, you know, if it's not a dip. But my mind jumped to was Hebrews 11 and looking where it talked about Abraham and even Jacob and then realizing that perhaps Rachel was in that as well, is that she was looking for a city, never really apprehending it. That, But it says that at one point uh, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. For those who were making clear they were seeking a country, of their own and thinking a country from which they went out and they would have an opportunity to return. And it just seemed that 
Rachel is one person who was on the way. Right. So she was on, to, on the way to a better place, never apprehended it, never got to experience it fully. Yeah. And it should give us hope that even in our lifetime, if we don't get to accomplish everything, if we don't get to check everything off our list, which I'd love to do, that it's still the trajectory of going towards the better country of seeking God, and we're not going to be able to fully apprehend it here in this life. And it's just a good reminder. So thank you very much for the... Yes. I have a question for David, actually. I was surmising that there was another parallel, an additional parallel, at the end of the verse in Jeremiah. After that verse, there's a, a, a talk about a restoration of Israel, hope and joy, and that sort of thing. I don't know. I didn't think about whether it was the return from Babylon or some future thing or something like that. But there was a sense of a remnant returning in some sense. And I was wondering whether you thought Matthew was also trying to point to a parallel about Jesus, that Jesus is in some sense a remnant of the babies, and he's going to then return, and he is in some sense the hope and the promise that God has given to the Israelites in the same way Jesus is the hope and the promise that he has given to them. He's sort of the restoration is that a parallel, do you think, that Matthew is trying to point to, talking about Jesus with this verse, or is that not a parallel, do you think, or is that something that Matthew is not trying to bring out? In my thinking, he's critical to this in that the promises of God rest with him. So the fact that Jesus was not killed with the other babies is absolutely critical, and he's taken away, and he will come back. I hadn't thought about the coming back part of that have to think about that some more but I think Jesus is a critical part of this picture that's being painted because the attempt was to wipe out the promise of God in the sense of the Messiah one of the things we noticed that's interesting in that regard to that question it is the placement of the fulfillment of Jeremiah is not after the angel says return to Israel yeah. so it's not his return yeah. that's being highlighted right. it's his being in Egypt yeah yeah yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. I have two questions, if that's okay. But as it's almost four, I'm happy to wait. Try it. Yeah, do one, and then we'll see. Earl, I have a question for you. It's more of asking just clarification. I was a little confused when you were talking about Solomon as the son of God. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned that he was the authority of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if you could like, just flush that out a little bit more. Sure. Why is it that because he's the authority of Jesus that you would refer to him as the son of God? I'm not quite... Why do... When you refer to him as the authority of Jesus, yes. why does that mean that he's the son of God? Okay. With that, I have to go to section 6. If you want to follow along, I mean, for that, and try to answer it in one minute. And it's the, if you go to page two, in the middle of the page, I've got two verses hanging there by themselves, connect, but with no space in between them, 18 and 19 of 2 Samuel 7. And what I think is going on in 18 and 19 is that after God has made this Davidic covenant with David, David steps back and goes, this is unbelievable. Then David, King David, went in and sat in the presence of Yahweh, and he said, Who am I, Lord Yahweh, Adonai Yahweh, and what is my house that you have brought me to this point? 
Now may you be willing to bless the house of your servant that it continue in your presence into perpetuity because you, Yahweh, have spoken. From your blessing, may the house of your servant be greatly blessed into perpetuity. So David is expressing awe right after this happens. What is the awe all about? Is it just simply that his son Solomon has been chosen to be king of Israel? Or is this notion of the king of Israel pregnant with something that would just send David to his knees. And I think it's the latter. Such that the label that God assigns to David's son is, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. Therefore, ergo, he, is, he can be called the son of God. I think it's that, okay? And that then gets fleshed out in more detail by David in Psalm 8, which is just below that then. Yahweh our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have established your splendor above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than God and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You cause him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. I think David is referring to Solomon there. And the son of man, as a label, is a reference to Solomon as a son of God who comes from morally depraved humanity. That's what's mind-blowing to David. You are taking a flesh and blood, morally depraved human being, my son Solomon, and placing him in authority over your entire creation. What? Are you crazy? I'm just awestruck by that is what I think is going on there. I've got one more thing I could add to that, but you go ahead. I just don't, I don't really understand what that means. Okay. Because we refer to Jesus as the Son of God. Yes. Are we saying he's on the same level as Jesus, or? Yes. Okay. And what does it look like for him to have power rule over all the earth? Yeah. What is that? What does it mean to rule over the universe for a human being to do that? just a little bit under the authority of the transcendent creator. Yeah, that's great. That's the question, Janine. What does that mean? That's what David is sitting back and going, what does that really mean? Because here's the thing. Here's what I was going to add. This concept of the Son of God as the ruler over something quite large was popular within the ancient Near East. This is not the first time that this notion shows up in ancient Near Eastern history. In fact, I think God is borrowing it from the Egyptians and the Babylonians and others. That Pharaoh was the son of God also. He was the son of the chief god of the Egyptian pantheon, who was Ra, the sun god. And all the gods, the chief gods in particular, in the ancient Near East were seen as owning property. And the property that Ra owned was Egypt. The property that Marduk owned was Babylon. So the son of God as the king of Babylon, the son of Marduk, ruled over the property that Marduk owned, Babylon. The son of Ra ruled over the property that Ra owned, Egypt. Now you've got God saying, I'm going to do the same thing. And Solomon's going to be the son of God ruling over my property. What do I own? The whole kitten caboodle, the whole nine yards, the universe. Solomon's going to rule over that. That's the authority that he has in preparation for eventually the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, 
ruling over that property that in a way that Solomon could have theoretically but didn't actually, didn't in practicality because it really wasn't for him to do it practically. It was only for Jesus of Nazareth to do that practically. And so ultimately the entire creation, the entire story that God has written and is writing and will continue to write into eternity is for Jesus of Nazareth. That's why Paul calls him in Colossians. What does he call him? I don't remember. Doggone it. The firstborn among all creation, the very image of God, the very tupas, or it's maybe hupotema, I've forgotten which word it is, of God. And he is the reason why God brought this creation into existence. In order to rule over the creation, that is the property of the transcendent creator. And so the Davidic line then becomes the tool that God uses to state that and to demonstrate that to a degree for a while. And that's why I pointed out on these other passages then, why it becomes such a big deal when the northern kingdom of Israel says, we don't want anything to do with David. What? You're saying you don't want anything to do with God's central issue in the creation is basically what you're saying. You don't want anything to do with the guy, Rehoboam, in spite of what a jerk he is, who's been granted the authority to rule over the creation. You really want to go there? Because basically what you're saying is, you don't want anything to do with God. And that's exactly the direction they go. The, the northern kingdom of Israel was not an illegitimate kingdom because they broke away from Judah per se. They could have broken away from Judah and said, yeah, but the Davidic kingdom is still the central issue here. So let's keep going to Jerusalem. We just don't like Rehoboam. So as soon as Rehoboam is off the throne, hopefully the next guy won't be such a jerk. We'll rejoin them. But instead, they choose to completely rebel against God in all facets of their lives, except for the Levites who leave their property, except for the Asherites, the Naphtalians, the, the Zebulians or whatever, all the folks in the tribes in that northern area go, this ain't good. What Jeroboam is leading us into is not good. We're out of here. We're leaving our tribal lands and we're going down to Judah because that's where the purpose of God is. Sorry, long explanation. I get a little bit excited about this stuff too, but uh, anyway.